0: The Echo Chamber, brought to you by the Homes Report
1: and produced by the international broadcast specialist Marketeers. Sponsored by the Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. This is Arun Sudhaman with the Holmes Report. Ladies and gentlemen welcome to the Echo Chamber this is Arun Sudhaman and joining us on the podcast today this is historic because it's actually the man who helped us launch the Echo Chamber back in I think 2012 Robert Phillips of now of Jericho Chambers. Robert how are you?
1: Yeah thank you it's it's good to be back it's um it's been an interesting few years since I was last on but uh I've been following you as an avid listener, of course.
0: Yeah, no, it's been way too long um, since we had you on. Of course, you, you were on the first, I think pretty much every episode from the first kind of 18 months. Um,
1: yeah, I wonder what I did to get dropped. That
0: was the, that was the big question. <laughs> I'm not sure we dropped you. <laughs> I felt like maybe you were uh, you'd had enough of talking about the PR industry <laughs> after you wrote a book called Trust me, PR is dead.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it would appear five years on that I was wrong. PR is clearly not dead. <laughs> whether, whether it's the right kind of PR that seems to have come through the interregnum is another question. Yes, indeed. And indeed, I think, I mean, I, I, we, we reviewed your book. And I
0: think what I said at the time was it, it was hard to disagree with your, your diagnosis of the kind of, ills that were assailing um the industry. But I think it also kinda of came down a lot to how how and what you describe PR and and what in specifically you were referring to. Um is that
1: Yeah, you very kind yeah, you very kindly said at the time that it was uh, a book about how PR should be, not mm. what PR has become. Yeah. And I think reflecting on the past few years and especially events of recent weeks where you see a very conscious uh, rebranding of certain of the large agencies. Mm -hmm. I think there is still a big question mark about what PR has become Mm -hmm. um, and whether people and the industry really has looked into its soul to address the more fundamental issues rather than just continue to do what it's always been very good at, which is selling products and services.
0: Yeah. I mean, so you still take the stance that the the industry is, is still too, I guess you could say, cynically motivated um, in the pursuit of profit, perhaps. and I'm not,
1: is, Yeah, is I'm not sure it's necessarily a cynicism, although mm. I think there are certain people at the top of the industry who would certainly befit a cynical tag. Mm. Um, I think PR, like so many other 20th century industries, has really struggled to come to terms with itself in the 21st century. And the questions that I was asking not just five years ago when, trust me, PR is Dead came out, but prior to that with my work on Citizen Renaissance and even the public engagement work that I did whilst CEO of Edelman. Um, The the real question is, how does communication or where does communication fit into the new 21st century settlement between government, business and civil society? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the question, really that the industry has failed to answer adequately. It's gone on very well. There's a, there's a line in my book uh, attributed to the entrepreneur Luke Johnson, he said, where there's a buyer, there's a market. Yeah. And, and there's always a continuation of buyers and therefore continuation of sellers in the PR marketplace. But Adam or profa- uh, yeah.
0: Patisserie Valerie, I'm not sure there's any buyers <laughs> for that. But anyway, yes. Yes, you know. that notwithstanding.
1: Um, um, but I, I suppose there's a, a the joke in there somewhere about having your cake and eating it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I, but I think that it's, it's really coming to terms with the more existential questions about why do we exist? What purpose do we serve? So root, looping back to your question around, um, around purpose and profit, mm. um, I'm not sure that the PR industry has necessarily fully addressed the purpose question yet.
0: Mm. Well, it's not the only industry, I would imagine. And it's interesting because you, you mentioned that the, the settlement between um, government, business, and the public, that compact. Yeah. Where do you rate government right now? Um, because if you look at the UK and the US, it's almost as if it's abdicated um, its responsibilities in that
1: regard. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, there's. Uh, I think some of my views have actually sort of radicalised or hardened since, since first publishing. Um, trust me, PR is dead. Um, and in that book, I did call for a new settlement. And obviously, we've seen, if you like, certainly. If not a collapse in government authority, certainly a reshaping of government authority and all this noise around fake news, which, by the way, I think pollutes the corporate sector as much as it pollutes the political sector. Um, there's a, there's, a, a, there's a, a quote attributed to the Italian communist Antonio Gramsci in the 1930s where he talks about the interregnum, the period in which the old is not yet dead and the new is not yet fully born. And he calls that period the interregnum. I think that's where we are between the late 20th century and the early 21st century. And Gramsci writes, in the interregnum, morbid symptoms persist. Mm -hmm. And if you begin to think about Donald Trump or Viktor Orban or Brexit as morbid symptoms, if you begin to think of some of the fakery that's gone on in both the political and corporate worlds as morbid symptoms, if you look at some of the corporate scandals that have persisted when we thought that we'd put them behind us, or the collapse of so-called trust, which I'm sure we can come on to discuss. These are just morbid symptoms. So I think we're in an interregnum, a sort of very strange and unstable, febrile period in both politics and business where there are no certainties. Uh, And that means there are no certainties around leadership, there are no certainties around trustworthy behaviours, there are no certainties around outcomes. Uh, and there's no certainties around stability. And one of the points that I made in, in my book originally was is that the next generation or the current generation of communications practitioners needed to come to terms with this sort of messy chaos. And I think that in PR, in the PR industry's desire to always impose order, always impose control, always impose structure, I think that's antithetical to the messy chaos in which we find ourselves. Mm.
0: Is it possible to run a big agency network along those lines um, without the necessary order and by embracing chaos
1: I mean some would say some networks do embrace chaos (laughs) yes i was part of a network that accidentally embraced chaos or unintentionally embraced chaos and i think this is one of the big questions or big discussions i had with richard Edelman back in 2011 2012 in which you know i argued that the network of the future had to embrace chaos and richard's point was that may well be the case but hey simplicity sells Mm -hmm. my counter argument to that is is that we are not giving the best advice to our clients if we pretend that we can impose order on chaotic situations Mm. Um, and I think that there is an asymmetry in the world that we really have to come to terms with and unfortunately it's not in the doctrines if you like of either established public relations practice or established business practice or business school orthodoxy that really wants people to embrace asymmetry people right. want nice tidy solutions they want answers by the end of the financial year they want powerpoint charts that only point in an upwards direction mm-hmm. um, but the world isn't like that the world is much much more messy <clears throat> much more chaotic much more unpredictable um, and one of the the reasons that with with jericho we built the the, the models that we have mm-hmm. is to be able to bring that chaos actually into the boardroom and to face it, you know, head on and to look dissent in the face rather than trying to control it um, or, or sort of, you know, uh, have it play to your tune. Um, and I think that the wiser corporates and their counsellors are those who recognise that the world order has changed. So it's kind of moving away from this notion that you can manage dissent Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And I I would say actually, I I would radicalize that and say not only can you not manage dissent, (coughs) excuse me, not only can you not manage dissent, you have to welcome dissent into the decision-making process. And actually, this runs to the heart of my more recent work on trust or trustworthiness, which is that trustworthiness is built. Uh, through demonstration of vulnerability. Of course, CEOs, political leaders historically have never wanted to demonstrate any vulnerability. They've always wanted to demonstrate macho control. Mm -hmm. And actually, by demonstrating dissent, or by welcoming dissent, you're demonstrating vulnerability. By demonstrating vulnerability, you're engendering more trustworthy Mm behaviours, which then builds for more stable relationships in this new settlement between business politics and civil society. Do you find there's a, a receptive audience, for that
0: kind of thinking, Um, because, you know, I know you're selling a service as well, right? Um, But how do you make that case when you do have corporates for whom, you know, that idea that they can control their outcomes, manage their message and shut out dissent is deeply ingrained?
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, the the English phrase is that it's very Marmite. Um, People either love it or hate it. People either welcome it or reject it. Um, You know, there was a a chapter in the book, which was dedicated to the the financial services sector and a bit to Ryanair called It's Okay to be an arsehole, in which I argued that, you know, you can go on ignoring it if you want. You can go on behaving that profit and shareholder value has to be the only maxim in business. And that's not to say that you won't run a successful business. Whether that is an ethical and principled way to conduct your business is a moot point. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I was arguing for was a rejection of that, if you like, Milton Friedman principle around the maximization of shareholder value and the celebration of profit over purpose and trying to find a new and balanced way. And there are some business leaders who want to do that out of a genuine commitment to ethical principle leadership and others, uh, some some of my clients do it as an act of faith as much as anything else. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is, a, it is a conscious choice. Mm-hmm. Just going back to your point about selling a service, you know, we set Jericho up really as much as, a, as a, if you like, a, as a social enterprise mm-hmm. um, or as a not-for-profit as a commercial organization. We're not driven by a profit motive. We don't have profit targets or revenue targets. Mm-hmm. and We don't have an exit strategy, and that does allow us to be much more flexible in the way that we work. the clients who are attracted to what we do are are usually those who are either themselves at the vanguard of change and recognise that within their organisation the status quo is not sustainable. Mm -hmm. That may well be for enlightened or Mm self-enlightened purposes, but they certainly recognise that in this sort of interregnum, something's got to give and something's got to change. So they're often themselves at the vanguard of change. Either that or their sector is itself under huge, usually regulatory pressure to reform and what they're trying to do is effectively to get ahead of the curve, recognizing, again, that sort of trying to manage the message or, or behave in conventional terms won't cut it. Uh, and unfortunately, quite a lot of sectors are coming quite late to the, to the party on this. Um, and, and so they're sort of saying, yes, we need to do something. But that is after governments, either nationally or supranationally, have tried to impose new solutions. Mm.
0: It's interesting you, me- you mentioned the, your point about the vulnerable CEO. Um, is that a pattern that you're seeing more of? Are there other are people that you could point to as being emblematic of that trend? Or is it still perhaps too few and far between at this stage?
1: I think, I think at this stage it's few and far between, but the ambition is certainly greater. And this also speaks to the more recent conversations around gender and race and age diversity in the workplace. Um, and in fact, I was having this conversation online with Sarah Hall, the former president of the CIPR. Um, i think certainly as far as the public relations industry in itself is concerned until we see a major generational and possibly gender shift in leadership uh, that change is not going to happen so uh, i think that may well be a proxy for for industry and business business more broadly there is still too much regeneration of pale male and stale leaders Mm. uh, hanging on and i think it's only when diversity in in all its dimensions, not just in in terms of race or gender, um, takes hold that we'll begin to see a shift. Uh, One of the encouraging things, I think, for whatever we now call the PR industry, whether it's the progressive PR industry or the communications marketing PR industry, um, is that the younger generations seem less tolerant of this sort of age of control, seem less tolerant of this sort of um, macho culture. Um, And so hopefully there is a a shift underway. Indeed. What are your thoughts
0: on, let's say, Unilever CEO Paul Polman, because, you know, he's always always been held up as the kind of poster child of the purpose driven CEO um,
1: for a number of years now. I mean, has your your thinking on him shifted at all? No, I think, you know, I think in a way, um, you know, Paul Polman is a great example of, of someone at the vanguard um indra at pepsi again although you know as soon as the the pepsi share price came under pressure um of course so did her performance with purpose mantra come under pressure too um ditto when um when polman you know didn't see the the bid from from Kraft coming it was seen as a a time he had to escape his purpose-driven mantra you know unilever is not perfect uh, as most large global corporations are not perfect but what um Pullman and a few others have done is signify that there is another way of behaving and that there is a way of embedding proper purpose within an organization and i think that some of the people who are quick to criticize polman um, because they see him as too messianic if you like i think uh, 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 uh are, are judging him unfairly i think there is a, a genuine commitment to change and, and change is not easy yeah. and you know change is full of contradictions that's the other thing that within jericho we, we try and you know, help our clients understand. And it's not easy because they are tutored on having definite results, but within a definite period for a definite amount of money and a definite return on investment. And in the current settlement or lack of settlement, that just may not be possible. And our work on responsible tax is a case in point. You know, We are beginning to inform the, the, the global tax debate at a, on a number of levels, on a number of very specific areas, from developing world to digital taxes and, and rethinking corporation tax. But there is no easy answer. There's no immediate answer. So it goes back to this whole point about messy chaos and, and infinite shades of grey. And, of course, that's not where business leaders like to be. They still like to be in a world of black and white, not in a world of grey. And PR as an industry was designed historically to reinforce either the black or the white.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about
0: the Responsible Tax Project. This is something that you're doing in conjunction with KPMG, correct? Correct, yeah. And what was the, the thinking behind it? Why, why did it kind of come into being?
1: Well, originally, actually, it was at the start when I was beginning to do the research around, trust me, PR is dead, and about the whole point about trying to, it was pointless trying to manage the message and pointless trying to use communications as a way of working a way out of a crisis and that really better policy was needed. And that policy had to be rooted in purpose. Uh, And Jay McCormack, who who was then the UK head of tax, now is the global head of tax, who um, I have to say is probably the bravest and most visionary business leader I've ever worked with, um, heard me sort of talk about these ideas and they were just ideas at that stage and said I think this is the answer to the current tax dilemma which has become incredibly um, entrenched in terms of you know yaboo politics if you like around taxation mm-hmm. um, with people really looking to either say you know you know tax in one direction or no tax in another direction but they were incredibly polarized and quite ill-informed views. And what jane and i started to do was first of all ask not how can we communicate better around issues of tax but how can we address the substantive issues around tax including what is the purpose of tax itself right. and and whilst that may sound like a quite a trite question um we began you know we, we ended up working this through with a number of kpmg partners and and then using the dissenting model that we were talking about earlier bringing people into the conversation who really were very hostile to KPMG and their thinking. That included um, the Margaret Hodge, who was then chairman of the Public Accounts Committee, a very vocal critic of KPMG, Richard Murphy, the tax campaigner, who again was a very vocal critic uh, of the big four, and, and saying to them, look, we are digging at what the real purpose of tax is, and we have this sense that you know, tax is the entry fee we pay for a civilized society, and without tax we don't get roads, schools, hospitals, and so on. And so how do we rethink responsible tax based on the purpose of tax, not based on the politics of tax? And by bringing those people into the conversation, and and that stakeholder group started with 16 people and is now a community globally of over 2,000, again, right across the spectrum, left to right, corporate to to, to public sector, um, NGO and activists through to um, academics and experts. They have begun to put together a very new or a completely different dialogue based on the purpose of tax and responsible tax principles and responsible tax policies that flow from that on any number of areas. And in fact, we've just published our second publication in the series, which is um, imaginatively entitled What to Tax? Oh. Um, which followed on a publication around the developing world um, and tax policy. And again, that brings all these voices across the spectrum in to have a, an informed conversation and informed debate. And if you like, a lot of these groups are peer reviewing their own policies and ideas so that things are not being just a, d- drummed up, no pun intended, given the, the, the nature of this podcast, in echo chambers, mm. um, but are being thought on a much more multilateral basis. Mm. It's interesting because tax is really one of the biggest drivers in terms of
0: of corporate behavior, in terms of of corporate reputation. Um, And as you have mentioned, it it is a a really important policy issue. Um, But the cynical view, I guess, is that corporations are always looking to reduce the amount of tax they pay, and they go to enormous lengths um, to minimize their tax liabilities, to avoid tax. uh, They, you know, they they base themselves in different countries, they look for loopholes. Is that the kind of thing that you're looking to address with this project?
1: Well, we, there is, uh, and again, if anyone wants to go to the Responsible Tax website, you can see, you know, we, in, in the interest of transparency, we film a lot of our roundtables and events um, and publish transcripts of them. So you can see the, the conversation specifically on avoid, and apologies, by the way, if you're getting a bleeping in the background. Um, I'm not quite sure how to turn that one off. I, think we're okay. um, I don't hear it. Uh, okay, good. Okay, it's only hearing at my end. Um, so um, uh, in the interest of transparency, you can see a number of those conversations. Um, on film and in transcript on the web, including one which we held in Amsterdam about a year ago in avoidance and invasion. so, but in answer to your question, yes, one of the reasons that tax fascinates me is that tax does sit at the heart of the new social compact without yeah. any measure of doubt. Yeah. Because, as I said before, without tax, and tax is the entry fee we pay for a civilized society. And even if you look at the current debate around corporation tax, which I think is highly politicized and mostly misinformed, and people are now looking at digital services taxes, but what they're failing to understand is we live in a digital economy. So you can't really differentiate between corporation tax and digital taxes. Why is a supermarket delivery service any more or less digital than Amazon or Apple, which happens to be either a warehouse company or a watch distribution company, as well as a digital company? Mm-hmm. So I think that, I think that in a way, um, tax is a proxy for the sort of society we want to live in, and that's one of the reasons it, it's so fascinating. To the second part of your question is, don't corporates always want to minimize their tax bill and avoid tax? I think the answer is no. Um, That's not the case. It it may well be the popular perception, Mm. but I've worked with a number of tax directors, a large number of tax directors across Fortune 500 and FTSE 100 companies. Uh, And I've worked with them in coalition with activists, with NGOs, with campaigners, with academics, with media commentators. Um, And actually what they rail against is... Um, double taxation, unnecessary double taxation, or ill-informed tax policy. I think everyone understands, or well, not everyone, but certainly the majority of people understand that what we're looking at is a fair and responsible settlement. So I think it's, it's a misnomer. Of course, there will always be outliers, but it's a misnomer to say that the corporate world is just there to minimise its tax bill. Uh, and in certain instances, and there are great examples, Unilever you mentioned earlier, GSK is another, um, where a lot of the large global... Uh, organizations or corporates understand their responsibilities especially in response in relations to the developing world in terms of increasing both tax capacity and tax take in those countries uh, and the way that actually it would generate better economies and better societies as a result
0: yeah it's fascinating Um, I wanted to ask you uh, you you mentioned um, some of the issues around fake news earlier And I'm curious how you see that unfolding from your vantage point, specifically in terms of how the big social media platforms have addressed this problem. Um, Do you think that they've done enough?
1: No. Uh, And I don't think they've done enough. Um, And I think there's an awful lot of forked or many forked tongues speaking in this debate uh, coming out of Silicon Valley, because I think it's a curious mix of pseudo hippieism and rampant U.S. libertarianism that they've yet to resolve. Um, I worry that in certain instances, you know, they are trying to close the proverbial stable door after the horse has bolted, specifically around some of the racist and misogynistic language that you see online. Mm -hmm. And I think that what we're now dealing with in some instances is the unforeseen consequences of the social digital age, that we didn't stop and ask questions hard enough about 10 or 15 years ago when we realized what the network society could potentially unleash. I think we all look to the optimism of Tim Berners-Lee and not necessarily the nihilism of, a, a, of a, I don't know, name any, any, any number of, uh, of, of racist or misogynistic or, or populist organizations that are not acting in the interest of the common good. That said, I think the issue of fake news is is interesting. Um, I would urge people to read Yuval Noah Harari's um, mm-hmm. latest book, Twenty One Lessons of the Twenty First Century, in which he he talks about the fact that fiction making or myth building has always been part of the the human sort of uh, condition, and that fake news is nothing new and he quotes both the bible and the quran as great as epic works of fiction um on which actually not just whole societies were built but in some way good societies were built as well yep. so we tend to look at the the fake news through the the ugly prism of donald trump um uh, or others but 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 in fact you know you know certain fictions can be be good fictions Um, football teams and our pursuit of them or our fandom around them is is, is another good example of that. Yeah, those are not good fictions. (laughs) Not necessarily good fictions. Yeah, I think the... um, So I think in that sense a lot of the fake news stuff is slightly overblown in the same way that there's a lot of bullshit talked around trust which Mm. those who've been following my work over the past four or five years will know that I've tried to sort of shine a, a disinfecting light on in a number of ways which is that We like to think that there was some halcyon age of trust, um, which there never was, that the evidence doesn't support that. None of the data supports that. And we like to think there was a halcyon age of truth. In fact, what there was was a halcyon age of control. This goes back to what we were saying earlier about the way that communications in particular, especially in a more analog-driven society, was able to exercise a degree of control and authority over an unruly rabble that's out there in in the mass. Um, and that gave a, a, a sort of perception, if you like, a false perception of trust or a false perception of truth. What really worries me about fake news is not necessarily how it's sort of deployed and then amplified by political leaders, um, but also how the corporate world is sort of cottoning onto this as well. Mm. Um, and I've, I've heard a few anecdotal instances of, uh, of business leaders asking to do a Trump Because they recognize that by sort of putting out an untruth, they can sort of effectively pursue a revisionist version of events. And I think that is a worrying trend. And I think that a number of PR firms um, maybe are rushing to see the dollar signs in pursuing this agenda rather than stopping and asking themselves the questions around, is this ethical? Is this principled? Is this right?
0: Mm. Yeah, that is worrying. It's interesting that you, you, um, frame, uh, fake news in the context of, um, humanity, I guess, You, you know, referring to Yuval Noah Hariri's, uh, book. And indeed, I think in his book, Sapiens, he mentions that, you know, this whole idea of, Collective fiction is what separates sapiens from from yeah. animals, right? Yeah. What is Trump a symptom of?
1: Well, I think Trump is, I mean, I think going back to my point about the interregnum, you know, the old is not yet dead, the new is not yet fully born. That's the interregnum, and in the interregnum, morbid symptoms persist, you know, Donald Trump is a very morbid symptom of mm-hmm. of a world that's neither hasn't come to terms with either the death of the old or the birth of the new, mm-hmm. um, and that's why I don't think I don't think others follow Trump. I think Trump is a is a symptom, not a cause, of the current malaise, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, a failure to come to terms with you know, a, a, a very changing world. I wrote at the time, actually I wrote prior to Trust Me, PR is Dead, going back to 2011, and then prior to that, to the, the global financial crisis, that our failure to listen to the message of Occupy, we are the 99%, yeah. would would come back to haunt corporate world. Mm-hmm. And, and that would give rise to both shareholder activism, employee activism, um, NGO activism, which would bring intolerable pressures on organisations licensed to operate. Um, and i stand by that mantra and in some in some ways trump um is and others brexit's another another good good example or the five-star movement or 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 the swedish democrats are are a failure for society to ask themselves the more profound and meaningful questions 10 20 or 30 years ago and trying to think they could continue to communicate or spin their way out of that crisis um through superficial means so i think it's a more profound issue and challenge so a couple of quick hits before i leave you
0: um thoughts on the iceland campaign which has been banned cynical stunt or worthy cause
1: both (laughs) Uh, the two are not necessarily mutually exclusive i mean it's the oldest trick in the book isn't it to get you get to get your ad campaign banned but that doesn't mean the message that, that that campaign um, you know, is trying to get across is not necessarily a worthy one. I, I'm not party to what decisions were made at Iceland, whether it was a deliberate attempt to get the ad banned or not, but that doesn't take away the power of the message.
0: I assume they knew because the ad was banned because it's a Greenpeace video rather than right. the actual content. So they, I mean, I, mean right. I would assume they would have known. that
1: Possibly. And by, the, and by the way, I mean, there, there is a point in here which I think goes back partly to some of the stuff we talk about, responsible tax. Yeah. A lot of the NGOs, and we saw this with the the Oxfam and Save the Children scandals earlier um, in the year and last year, you know, have adopted the, the, the moniker or the mantra of corporate behaviours. So I think it's naive to look at, you know, all uh, corporates in the bad corner and all NGOs in the good corner because some of those NGOs display bad corporate behavior and some of the corporates as Unilever we talked about earlier displays good NGO behavior I mean Paul Polman is on record isn't he saying that he wanted Unilever to become the world's largest NGO yeah. so again I think this speaks to the sort of the the bumpy settlement that we're finding that we're trying to find our way around at the moment
0: yeah it's a, yeah. It's a very good point um, thoughts on the walkout of Google employees um, over sexual harassment
1: well i mean it, 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 that goes back to my point about about employee activism yep. and uh, and and again it's a, a seminal article well i think it was seminal that i wrote in in 2010 which led to the work that i ended up doing in cass business school around employee activism to me the activist employee was was a, was an axiom mm. and 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 we were willfully blind to it 10 15 years ago um it was partly because of um, the communication tools now at our disposal, which means that we don't have to go through layers of authority to communicate with one another it's partly through the freedom that social media brings it's partly through the liberation and awareness of the next generation of people so uh, um am I surprised no um am I surprised that Google is as you know it goes back to my point about it may be um, it may be uh, on the do, or like to think of itself on the do-no-evil spectrum, but that doesn't mean that parts of it won't, um, won't uh, demonstrate, you know, poor corporate behaviour as any other large organisation will at some point. So I'm not surprised either at the walkout or the inevitability of it or the bad behaviour of Google. It's just any other corporate at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. I thought it was interesting, though, because it's something we haven't really seen, not to that kind of extent, and at such a big company
1: yes i mean i think one of the interesting things and you and i talked about this you may recall several years ago um at the time of the new when the news of the world folded um yeah. um at what point will consumer or employee activism really bring a company down yeah it hasn't happened yet we've come right. close and i'm not saying that the employee walkouts of google would ever bring the company down um but there are a number of instances whereby the boycotting of a of a product mm-hmm. um uh, or the boy you know, we, we saw it actually in bits in the early stages of tax around starbucks google and amazon but mm-hmm. of course people find google and amazon just too convenient and whilst they had a, a choice in starbucks to go to costa or cafe nero at the end of the day it didn't count for much but i think at some point We will see a brand or a corporation brought down by activism, whether it's the activism of employees, the activism of shareholders, the activism of NGOs or a combination of all those things. I guess that is inevitable uh, as long as people can sort of shift their mindset from the the sheer convenience of buying that particular product or service.
0: Yeah, it would be no bad thing, though, right? Because unless bad behavior has a cost, then it will persist. (laughs)
1: yeah and that i think takes us back to our conversation around you know progressive pr or whatever that's meant to be which i don't think is progressive in the slightest um um, that seems to me to be a a a relabeling an attempt to position one agency or one consultancy versus another agency i don't think it's progressive in the slightest in terms of what the new social settlement would be progressive pr would be understanding that the license to operate of any organization is under threat from employee activism, shareholder activism or NGO activism to such an extent that it has to fundamentally change its behaviors, not just the way it communicates or the way that it accesses its communications data. That's a more progressive settlement. And I think the industry is a long way uh, away from reaching into that yet.
0: Yeah. Well, Robert, thank oh, you very much. If, um, if PR is dead, it's good to see that your brain is very much alive. <laughs> um, and we should get you back on the podcast soon I hope
1: it's it's nice to be back I've um I've taken a break to think about stuff a lot and I've watched events unfold um from the sidelines to an extent that obviously I work on tax or I work on housing or I work on the future of work you know, we've got eight of the sort of tax-like coalitions now running, which are building this new settlement. So it's clear that there are different ways to tackle communications. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I think I was probably wrong in calling the early death of the PR industry, because I think commercially it's it's still in pretty good health.
0: Reasonably good health, although I think there are issues at the bigger end of the spectrum that we had discussed before on this podcast. Um, and that will come as, you know, no surprise to, to, to regular readers of the Holmes report anyway. Um, no, no,
1: I think I think something that uh, Martin Sorrell is looking at interestingly.
0: Yes, mm. indeed. Indeed. Well, thank you very much. Um, good luck with the tax project, of course. And um, we'll talk to you again soon, I hope.
1: Brilliant. It's great connecting and, um, and thanks for having
0: me on. And I'm joined today in Hong Kong by the president and CEO of the Institute of PR, Tina McCorkindale, Tina, welcome.
2: Thanks, Arun, for having me. This is great.
0: Welcome to Hong Kong. Thanks. It's great to have you here. You are speaking at an event later today. Yes. An IPR event with Paige?
2: Yes, so we're doing an event with Paige at uh, AIA. Mm. with Steve Thomas as one of our trustees. So. Okay,
0: cool. And what's the kind of idea behind that? What's the objective?
2: Well, every year we try to do some sort of presentation or symposium in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. And uh, to try to, I guess, get some of the research out there of what we're talking about and keeping people up to date. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is our annual trip to Hong Kong.
0: Wow. Well, you've, you've picked a perfect time of year for it, I think.
2: Oh, it's great. It's not- It's, it's not amazing. Hot. <laughs> It's, not it's hot. nice and kind of mild. It's not cold. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, so tell us a little bit about the IPR because how long have you been in your role now? Three and a half years. Okay, right. And um, for people who don't know exactly what the IPR does, perhaps you could explain for our listeners' benefit.
2: Sure, so we're a nonprofit research foundation and we do research that matters to the profession and we've been been around for, it'll be 62 years mm-hmm. um, that we've been right. around. And uh, so we have different focus of research that we do, uh, measurement, digital media, internal comms, all sorts of different areas and all our research is available for free. Mm-hmm. And we have a weekly research letter that people can sign up for and we have, um, and we're trying to be more global as well. So mm. we have people from all over the world who write for our research letter so we could stay up to date with the latest research in the profession.
0: Yeah, and I was actually having a look on the website and there is um, a lot of really interesting resources. So I'd recommend our listeners to to, to check it out. Um, and as you mentioned, some really important areas that you, you do research into, um, one of which of course is measurement. I was, I was reading about that. Um, I don't know if that's something you want to discuss. Right now I was reading a post about how there's this kind of stasis in measurement and it's still not really, really progressing. Is that, is that how you see it as well?
2: Yes. So Jim McNamara wrote a great post for us and he's Mm. based um, in Australia. And (laughs) I think sometimes with measurement, we're having the same conversations that I think we were having in the mid 80s, Mm. probably. Wow. And it's we still can't answer the question of, well, I guess it's also what is the goal of measurement? You have people who still the goal of measurement is to prove value rather than be predictive and help make smarter decisions.
0: Okay. Um,
2: but sort of, and then like, what to measure? Is it reputation? Is it employee satisfaction? Is it engagement? Or is it media impressions, which is a poor metric anyway? But mm. so there's all sorts of different metrics, and trying to figure out which one is mm-hmm. difficult.
0: It is interesting in that post. He, I think the phrase he, that Jim used was, is it functional? stupidity or something like that.
2: <laughs> it's a great phrase.
0: Is 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 a really great <laughs> phrase and not just the phrase but his explanation for it which is basically that firms are necessarily not invested in getting good measurement because they've been overpromising all along anyway. Yes. So they're not necessarily that interested in, uh, in 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 very rigorous rigorous measurement of what they're doing.
2: No, we call that success theater that okay. people go around touting their success, that we got eight billion you know, views, eight and you're like, wait, gazillion. how many people are in the world? <laughs> right, <laughs> Like that is impossible. Right. So then because of this, we've created this sort of culture of, I mean, we're still so focused on impressions, and it's the wrong thing to be focused on.
0: Yeah, okay. Um, so you spoke at our um, provoke conference in Washington DC. Very provoking. It was very. It was very provocative. <laughs> it was. I think, and it was.
2: It was. It was a great conference. Thank you very much. It was,
0: and and thank you for being part of it. Thank you for doing the last session on the last day. I think that's always tough, but you guys brought a lot of energy to it, um, and it was quite highly rated as well. Great. So well done. Um, so it was two weeks ago. Which, I mean, just
2: It, it feels, seems like it was like 10 years ago. <laughs> I know, it really does.
0: Um, and what the, the topic you were talking about was uh, companies joining this kind of purpose bandwagon. Uh, and we just hear so much talk now about how um, companies have to elucidate their beliefs. They have to take a stance sometimes on political issues. They have to stand for something more than just selling products um what's your view on that
2: oh gosh how long is this podcast it can be as long as you want really <laughs> we
0: yeah we've got plenty of time yeah
2: you know i, I think sometimes our industry sort of just, just whatever comes up we're like should we should get on this and we're <laughs> always sort of jumping on the title was talking about the purpose bandwagon and yeah. jumping on the bandwagon and i think um and when you're dealing with purpose and really looking at a purpose it's I mean, every company is really different and it's very closely tied to mission. And people just throw, and what I talked about in the panel is that people are throwing this term around a purpose. Um, Some people equate it with social responsibility. Some people see it as the mission of the organization. But I mean, so I think stepping back and saying, what are we doing? Do we have the capability to do it as an organization? And does it make a difference? Because what we've seen is that you have some executives who say, to the CCO or whomever, we gotta get on this purpose thing because so-and-so is on purpose and we need it. And that's the, a terrible approach to take. It has to be very strategic and very thoughtful. And mm. and also and also some companies, and there's like this purpose continuum. Some companies are better suited for this mm-hmm. sort of overall purpose driven organization versus others who may just dabble in it but still have a purpose. So there's just variations and it. We're, we're just talking about it as if it's this one overarching thing when there's so many different facets to it.
0: Yeah, I mean, it does seem like there's something of a bandwagon though, right? You know, in, in that it's, just, it's a fad and, and, and maybe if we're being a little cynical, um, public relations firms are seeing it as, as a, a way to make more money, frankly, because they can sell these services around purpose. Um, do you worry that there'll be you know, any kind of a backlash?
2: I think there will be. I think, so what I see overall, if we even take a step back from that, is that, you know, we're very focused on, we're doing so many stakeholder segmentations by generation, like Mm -hmm. the Gen Zers and millennials. And there are so many different variations of millennials and who they are. You can be a millennial who's in college or a millennial who's a VP at a company with two kids and a family who's higher socioeconomic status. There's all these different uh millennial variations but this is what the research shows is that people are expecting companies to have some sort of overall purpose and contribution of purpose
1: mm. and we
2: also see it with like the un sustainable goals that were also focused more on overall purpose and contributions to society so i think it's as long as stakeholders demand it it will continue to mm. to be okay. important but i i think it's a good reflection point too for companies to step back and say you know Who are we? Where do we need to be? And are we contributing to the betterment of society as a whole?
0: Yeah. Okay. That's a good way of looking at it. So let's talk um, a little bit about some of the other research you're doing. You you mentioned you have, I think, a fairly big study coming up on gender in leadership. And is that looking specifically at the PR agency industry?
2: So what we did, we did 10 focus groups. Mm -hmm. And we... um, Looked at mid level women and men separately, mm-hmm. and then executive level women and men separately. So, yeah. for instance, if we had um, a few focus groups with like CCOs, agency heads, just females led by a female moderator. And then counterpart to that is we had male focus groups with CCOs and agency heads mm-hmm. run by a male moderator. Because we wanted to find out um, about various like questions related to mentorship and how people feel about their progression and positions and to hear stories about people and how they, um, feel they progressed? Like do they feel there's a glass ceiling where they are? How is there professional development opportunities? And how can the industry be better at helping support mm-hmm. leadership? Because the the research, you know, this is a very heavy female profession. Right. Right? Yeah. And but the leadership position is closer to seventy five percent male and twenty five percent female.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of the it's like a mirror image, isn't it? The, yes. The, the, and then if the you industry. get into
2: race and ethnicity, that number's mm. even significantly lower so so
0: tell us about some of the findings what what were the kind of headline um findings that you can share
2: sure we're going to release it in a couple weeks Mm -hmm. and um it it's fascinating just just listening to (laughs) to people tell these stories Um, one thing we we found and that most people said is that formal mentorship programs and organizations typically don't work And a lot of organizations, agencies are investing money into these mentorship programs. And people said it's very hard to click with somebody when you have this instead informal mentors, supporters, um, even peer to peer relationships um, seem to be more important. And this whole concept of mentorship for both women and men seem to be sort of a newer thing. where some of the um, both women and men who've been in the industry for a long time said, you know, we really didn't have mentor programs going up, and um, you know, we we just sort of glommed on to somebody to mm. to help us, and then we looked at um, different skills and abilities, and people for the most part said it has nothing to do with leadership, has nothing to do with um, sex, it has to do with your just your capabilities, mm-hmm. and. Um, skills and then we asked questions about related basically that got down to sexism in the profession mm-hmm. and um, some of the male focus groups said well there's sexism in the c-suite so until you fix the c-suite at a macro level like the it's not going to change mm-hmm. and um, I, but the stories that the women told were to me the most fascinating mm-hmm. of just feeling excluded in some cases or you um, or others who've been very successful in and try to sort of pay it forward. So there's there's definitely a lot of different variation with this topic, but it's a really important topic. And there's definitely, and what we also wanna do, um, we're gonna do a survey, like a survey of the profession following this, but mm. what we wanna do is have some very solid action items of what, what we can do to move this forward instead of just doing a research study that we can be actionable and say, here's what we need to do.
0: Mm. What, how did the, the male, groups, focus groups, respond to the observation that um, females were being excluded?
2: Um, it was, <laughs> what was interesting is that the male focus groups didn't think that there was different. They were like, no, it's, I, I haven't seen it. It's really not there. I mean, we see it some, but it's just really not there. And I haven't really seen women not move up in their field because of it. And the women had a very different story to tell that they were they it was just like story after story. And it was stories of feeling excluded, whether it's like clients or something like that, or even um, people talked. We asked questions about policies and there's differences with policies Mm -hmm. Uh, with even women and men like some some don't even have paternity policies. So if we really want equality in the profession, do we have to think about also? The men as well because if you're giving um a female three months off paid and you're giving a male two weeks off it's it also affect the male is able to also accelerate their
0: more than yeah than imbalance
2: and then they're taking time off and then so it's 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 interesting too just the policies
0: Mm. okay so that's out in two weeks yes or
2: or beginning of december so we're really excited about that yeah that'll be good and the Definitely. survey will be even better.
0: Definitely. We'll look forward to that one. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the name PR.
2: Oh, gosh.
0: Yeah, this is, this is a very <laughs> controversial issue these yes. days. Yes. Who knew, huh? Who knew with everything Who knew that's going that on we have to, um, that this would be the most controversial I issue? I mean, it's, 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 it's got elections, you know, there's all sorts of political issues, but the big thing. Is what should we call <laughs> public relations? So, of course, Golin, an agency that I think you know well, yes. I know well, has come out and, and, you know, with a new positioning that is kind of overtly embracing the, the phrase PR, public relations. Um, I don't think there's anything really, you know, unreasonable. About that, I suppose, but it seems to have triggered a certain amount of consternation in the industry, which is uh, interesting. Uh, and, and it seems to be consternation for, for for a couple of reasons. One, I think, is some people just see, just in general, see these kinds of agency repositioning exercises as um, self-indulgent, um, which I guess you know everyone's entitled to their opinion. But the second thing is, you you do have, a, you know, I, I've seen people kind of actively um, repelling uh, this idea that it should be called public relations. And you know, if you look at, at agencies in general, uh, and, in, and indeed in particular if you look at the corporate departments, there's, a very, there's many that don't use the terminology PR now. They use strategic communications or they use integrated communications or they use, I don't know, owned advocacy or engagement. So Tina, where do you stand <laughs> on this? The big question of our time.
2: Um, so it's what's interesting is that I, I see PR as sort of getting the same treatment as, in a way, fake news. Like we've taken this term mm. and then just well. President Trump has taken this term and just made it very incorrect as to actually what it is or what it's trying to define. Mm-hmm. But PR has been around, the term PR has been around a really long time. And yeah. then I guess with, um, you have the media or people talk about PR in mm. a negative way, it they sort do. of stains the industry or they talk about spin and it stains the industry. But a name is a name is a name. So. If we want to take, but PR, regardless, it doesn't matter what it's called. It really is about building relationships. Mm. And I mean, if you take, if you just take it out of everything else, like public relations, is really what we do. Right. We're building relationships with mm. all sorts of stakeholders. So I do stand by that because people, and even PRSA had this, where they had a, they try to get added to a bylaw, add public relations and communications. And people flipped. Like really? they were like, absolutely not. This is the PRSA. This isn't the communication society yeah. of America. Wow. So I think that there's, there seems to be a just inconsistency in the profession. And I know yeah. that USC and you you um, yeah. work on a study with Fred Cook and they asked this question and people think it should be called corporate communications. But yeah. that's one sided because we can't just be corporate centric. There's so many There's so many different organizations, and I'm a nonprofit, right? Nonprofits do, they're not corporate communication. They Mm -hmm. do public relations, but I don't know. It's kind of a stain, but it's also historical.
0: You're right. I I mean, we do that, that study, the Global Comms report, which interestingly is called communications report. And I remember we had a discussion about what to call it. And the thinking was that if we called it communications, it would have more appeal to people on the client side than if we called it, for example, the global PR report. We, uh, as an organization, really Paul Paul Holmes is, is very keen on, on, on the phrase public relations, because in his view, he thinks that there's nothing that describes what this industry does better than public relations, right? And if you look at the definition of public relations, I think that's probably correct. I just wonder if the risk is that, that as you've mentioned, the kind of phrase PR has, has become, you know, it, whether it's stained or diluted or sort of somewhat disenfranchised, and, you know, it's, it now stands for such a, almost a multitude of sins. I
2: know. Um,
0: <laughs> and especially on the client side, I see, you know, you very rarely see a PR department or a head of PR or a PR director. It's, That's right. Um,
2: Communication and or global comms or
0: always communications and that, and that I think is, is a worry because you know if you think about it communications is is a tactic, right?
2: It is a tactic, and it's a very broad it's a broad term. But we as an industry have done an awful job at protecting that term PR. Right? You know, mm-hmm. we it's been even even I see I, you see surveys that I there is a survey that asks like which which pr person do you most connect with and it was like samantha from sex in the city and Whoa. Um, from scandal, and you're like, yeah. this is not doing our a- <laughs> profession in any fabulous. favors. Ad it totally <laughs> was. Uh, like Adina from AbFab. That would probably be that
0: would be mine if I had to choose.
2: If I had to choose, <laughs> I had to choose I, that's that's yeah. the same. But you're just—it's just sort of missing, you know. You're you're so we just don't do a, a good enough job, and we do it to ourselves too. So yeah,
0: but do you, I mean, do you think it's an important debate to have, just in general, to? to to expend energy on, on figuring out what to call ourselves or do you think it's kind of irrelevant
2: i think it would help if everybody was on the same page
0: mm.
2: i mean because people call page. marketing i see what you did there. <laughs> do you like that I did, yeah.
0: <laughs> very nice
2: um because people don't you have marketing and people right. don't they don't have like variations no, right no. marketing unless they combine it with maybe get like an integrated department or something yeah. along those lines but people are very clear it's marketing or finance or HR, but PR, it just differs from place to place, yeah. and it just doesn't do us any favors. If we all stuck to it, and if we all said this is what it is, then yeah. I think we'd be more successful.
0: I think so. And I actually think, I, I kind of like that Golden has kind of overtly made this, this decision. I mean, I think it will, um, it will attract criticism for sure, but then you kind of think, if, if you're not attracting criticism, then you're not really being very bold in your right. decision-making. Um, should we talk about PR being used as a verb and as a noun? Is that...
2: <laughs> if you want to. Yeah, that's,
0: that, that really We're is, public
2: relations-y.
0: I mean, you see it in the UK a lot. Let's PR this. Let's talk to APR. I mean, it's... Yeah, that really it's annoying. It drives me nuts. It's but annoying. Anyway, um, well, that's a discussion that will run and run, I imagine. So you're going to talk today, I think, later on today, I mean, it'll be our, sorry, it'll be, by the time this podcast comes out, you will have already spoken yes, at the forum. Yes, it'll
2: be amazing.
0: I, I'm sure, was, I'm sure. It was
2: an amazing presentation. It was an amazing, it wasn't yeah, we great, could, we, it well, like I've already, s- I've already seen this
0: presentation, right? <laughs> it's the same one you gave in, in
2: India. In
0: India, in yes, Hyderabad. Yes. Um,
2: you're the th- only duplicate person who's going to be there really? today. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, I'll, I'll pretend it's new. Not, not that you, not that you recycle your presentations. I'm sure. I do sometimes. You do? Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> at least you're honest about it. Um, you have to. You absolutely have to. If you're on the caravan, you have to. Yeah. So, And that's about the science of storytelling and that's looking at how kind of behavioral science yes. is changing. Do you actually see the, these techniques? And we've been talking about them a lot. We, we kind of have sessions at all of our conferences for, for years now. I mean, really going back six or seven years. But do you see these techniques actually being adopted? Um, by companies and by agencies? Or is it still theory rather than practice?
2: Yeah, I think it, we, you definitely see it more in marketing because mm. they have behavioral marketing sort of functions under marketing that they hire behavioral scientists to, um, and that they're on hand that can help understand audiences and help predict what audiences will do or how to change behavior. For PR, we're not fully there yet. I think people do adopt some of these techniques and strategies, but mm-hmm. it's not that we have like a formal, we have data scientists who can go in and pull data or do whatever, but we don't necessarily have behavioral scientists. And the reason why I know that is because we're putting together a, um, a guide for hiring behavioral scientists. So we wanted to oh. talk to companies and agencies to find out, tell me about your behavioral, Scientists. And, they don't, have and any. they don't have any. There's a couple that do. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, like Southwest, is Southwest, Southwest is an Southwest. example. Ogilvy has a huge behavioral science function. They do. Chris Graves. Is with Chris Graves. Way That's ahead right. on this. Yeah. He's way ahead on this. And mm. he has. Um, he's
0: almost too far ahead. Though. He's so I far ahead. He really is.
2: <laughs> yeah. And it's because he has devoted, he has gone in the. It's almost that like he did his own PhD. Like, he's he an did. autodidactic yeah. PhD behavioral science because he's combed through mm-hmm. and i'm not exaggerating like hundreds of I articles i know he sent me hundreds a, of articles a, there was a
0: period where he was sending me a lot of research papers on neuroscience um which did was you
2: fall off his list did he stop sending those to you well
0: are, are you still <laughs> are, are you still getting them have <laughs> no, i been removed, I, I, been removed? <laughs> I must have
2: been removed too yeah
0: i'm not sure he's sending sending them anymore um i
2: think is he's so on the circuit with it yeah. that he probably just doesn't have time because he's really out there i yeah. mean it's
0: I mean, we jest, but really, I think he deserves a lot of credit for for flagging it. I, I do wish the industry would take it more seriously, but it's, a, you know, people I've spoken to in the industry will say, yes, it's great and wonderful, but, you know, we have enough trouble getting clients to pay for planning and evaluation, and now adding another thing in, it's just hard with the model.
2: But then they're not doing it right, if that's the case. Mm -hmm. Because you can easily convince, you can do, you can make serious changes with just implementing a technique. So instead of, um, and they call this, there's like a term for it where it's called libertarian paternalism. And what that means is that I'm help guiding you, but you still have the freedom to make a choice. Mm. So whether it's automatically having you opt into a retirement program, but... There's a lot of also debate that we haven't really talked about in the profession, the ethics surrounding it. Like, that's for good. Like, we're trying to help you make how we can help you stop smoking or how we can help you do X. But on the
0: but it could be flip used, side of yeah. that,
2: you can get people to do things that are not necessarily ethical.
0: Could be used for ethical nefarious. It's, it's definitely that kind of nudge
2: it's the nudge yes theory. exactly right it's like the Richard Thaler mm-hmm. nudges where how do you get people to change their recycling habits or how do you get people to which is clearly good for mm. society but there's a lot of things that probably aren't good for society that you can nudge mm. so
0: okay all right well I look forward to that this afternoon um, Tina thank you so much
2: thanks for this your is time. great yes yeah.
0: and I look forward to seeing you again I'm sure at another event
2: Of course, yes. That would be great.
0: Thank you all for listening, and um, a big shout, as always, to our production partner, Marketeers, uh, and our sponsor, Bullet. Thank you all. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers.
1: Sponsored by The Bullet Group, putting you in tomorrow's conversations today.